Hey, what is going on, everyone? It's me, Mr. Mario, and welcome back to another episode of Mod Chat. For those who do not know, this is a podcast I do here at least monthly in two different forms. First of all, it is available in a video visual form here on the Mr. Mario 2011 YouTube, Odyssey, and Rumble channels. Now, I did say that this is a podcast, so if you are wanting to listen to it wherever the hell you want to in an audio-only fashion like an actual podcast, simply look up ModChat, all one word, on your favorite podcasting app, host, or provider. You should hopefully be able to find it on there. I know it's not available on all of them, but it's available on most of them. Either way, this is a podcast I come on here, I talk about really what I find cool, interesting, fun, funny, uh, sometimes we do some show and tell, but just things that I find interesting that I might want to share with you, discuss, and talk about in the world of video game mods and video game console modding. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing in this episode here. We got a few interesting topics, including some fun-looking stuff here for the PlayStation 5 to have everything be a little more fluid, I guess you can say. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into this episode. First things first is going to be for the original Xbox coming from Xbox scene and specifically Team Resurgence here saying that they announced two new open source projects, one being the LPC Mangler and another being the LPC Recovery Tool. Reading right off here, they state Team Resurgent has unveiled its work in progress proof of concept mod chip, the LPC Mangler. This emerging creation still in its developmental stages currently supports up to four megabytes of flash storage and offers serial output capabilities the original xbox even with the passage of time retains a fervent and dedicated fan base projects like the lpc mangler underline the community's ceaseless passion as enthusiasts consistently push boundaries to rejuvenate timeless hardware Alongside the LPC Mangler, the team has also rolled out LPC Recovery Tool. This utility allows enthusiasts to harness the power of a Teensy 4.0 to flash a SST49LF040LPC BIOS chip. Both releases highlight the ongoing innovation within the original Xbox community. We're eager to see the community rally around these projects, lending their expertise to further refine and enhance them. With such collaborative spirit, the potential for groundbreaking modding capabilities becomes boundless, propelling the Xbox experience into new realms. While the original Xbox is considered vintage, its legacy, bolstered by such innovations, is evidently enduring. And right here we have both of the projects, so we can definitely check them out. And we have some photos right here of these two so let's actually take a look at each of these individually here let's check out the lpc mangler it states here that this intercepts the lpc command between the chipset and an lpc flash chip rewriting the command and address bits so that you can use larger later chips that don't normally reside at the same addresses as typical lpc flash chips used in simpler mods like the aladdin and does so while adding as few extra clock cycles as possible to the transaction would love for the community to control Tribute and complete the design. Currently supports up to four megabyte flashes, also has ability for serial output, etc. Requires L-Frame to be implemented to work with higher revision Xbox possibly. So just keep that in mind there. If you're installing this in a 1.6 system, then just don't cut the LPC or the, the L-Frame trace. Second here is the LPC recovery tool, which it states here you can use a Teensy 4.0 to flash that LPC BIOS chip and can be used with the LPC Mangler chip and 
that's it here. I've really been following the updates to Flippy Drive here, which in case you do not know is in short going to be a optical drive emulator for the GameCube, which ends up using the Raspberry Pi Pico W. Super awesome to see. However, you can see here a nice development is that this actually retains the optical drive itself. So unlike the GC loader, you don't need to rip out the optical drive, which is super cool. It states here from Chris Peville, looking like you can keep your disk drive with flippy drive too. So far, the new flex, Pico spring contacts, and bypass mode work. So solderless bring your own Pico drive plus ODE is happening. I needed to bodge two wires, but the revision three boards are good enough for development fourth time's the charm. Let's also check out their video here. So right here we see they turn on the GameCube, it has Wind Waker loaded up, and this is the whole interface itself here. That's the actual uh, flippy drive unit installed. And we can see this. GameCube boots up. And there we go. We have data. And it is playing Wind Waker, so really awesome to see here. They did leave one other follow-up to this, saying the low-profile socket thing was designed so the stack would fit inside the case with drive still present. Current plan is near the right-hand vent area sitting vertically, opposite side of the fan, and it fits. The board will be shrinking quite a bit too as we move away from prototypes. They even put up another tweet here I wanted to highlight talking about this saying a uh, few have asked about the self-install Pico process. It's not bad. The countersunk screws cause the board to align on the contacts. So it's as simple as place and screw down. Only gripe is the screws are small. Like all the Raspberry Pi products, the Pico has some interesting mounting holes. We have three photos here that we can look at. This first one here, check this out. This is how it would look when you're installing it in physically. So super cool because like this, if it's like this, it doesn't even require soldering at this point. And then that's the actual flippy drive prototype, the revision three board right there. So you just plop that on and screw it in. And there we go. That's how it should look, which that is just super awesome. I'm sure it wouldn't hurt to solder this in specifically. I don't think you would really be damaging it. It would just be more difficult to take out if you ever need to do that. But this is really cool if you're telling me you can just flash the Raspberry Pi Pico W with the flippy drive firmware and then quite literally screw it in. We really gotta love Doom, right? And Doom is one of those things people say it's like when you're trying to get code execution, like unsigned code execution, and really just get a first project onto something aside from Hello World, one of the first things that you can run on pretty much anything is Doom. So this here is not a homebrew port, but check this out here. Uh, this is from a uh, site called Sega Dreamcast Info Preservation Games, which I have not seen before, uh, but they state here, unofficial Dreamcast ports developed on a real dev kit in the early 2000s. Now, it starts off here talking about Doom 2000 on Windows CE and really just giving a nice introduction of it here, and then talking about Doom 1, how this was born and how everything worked here. However, getting into the Dreamcast 2000 Doom port here, it states this unofficial Dreamcast port of Doom is what you might call an original Sega console port of Doom. It was programmed on a Dreamcast Katana development kit with Windows CE. The last modification of the source code dates from September 27, 2000. 
In a way, it's the Doom that could have been released during the marketing of the Dreamcast between 1998 and 2001. Of course, the game would have been fine-tuned to adapt to this generation of consoles. There are many changes that have been made to the Dreamcast version. They are not necessarily noticeable in-game. For example, the Y key, which is normally used to open the level map, allows you to quickly change weapons. The handling has changed, more intuitive and more pleasant unlike other Dreamcast Doom ports. The game is compatible with a controller, mouse, keyboard, and rumble pack. The Doom icon appears on the VMU. Backup requires 60 free blocks on the memory card. Unfortunately, this does not load. Opening the lid during a game will stop the game and return to the Dreamcast main menu to confirm. The online mode would be present. With work, it would be possible to make it functional to see if it's worth it. The game seems stable, the frame rate seems okay. There are a few crashes. On emulator, notably Flycast, DC Doom may boot to a black screen with music only. You just have to restart the game. At startup, you have to wait a little while before seeing the title screen appear. As there is no loading screen, it is replaced by a black window. It fails to be patient. And here, you can download the Doom Dreamcast below. It includes a CDI to burn your game as well as the GDI, and there's even the source code available as well too, which is really awesome to see. Now some extra important notes here is that it was a technical proof of concept, it was not planned for a release. This game was made on a Katana Dreamcast development kit during the year 2000. They do want to give thanks to the collector who shared the source code with us, and Lemon Haze from the Shinmu Dragon and Phoenix Collection project, and to Ian Michael for their help with the GDI, CDI, and the GitHub link, and then to Dreamcast Me That for the cover. Now let's look at the photos here. So, I mean, right here, first of all, we do have some screenshots of Doom itself. I don't know if these are really from the uh, the Dreamcast version that's running here. However, here we have this where you might have seen this on some things, but uh, yeah, powered by Microsoft Windows CE, this is a thing on the Dreamcast. Uh, we got the differences here that's being shown. I believe this is in Beyond Compare right there, just showing the differences between uh, Dreamcast Doom and regular Windows 2000 Doom. Uh, we have this on the VMU right here, and then we have some really awesome screenshots here. So, super cool to see all of this. Now, I am curious to look at the source here. Sure enough, also on here we have from Lemon Haze 420 the DC Doom repository. And they say, Win Doom source code for Dreamcast. Thanks to Combi Laurent and Ian Michael and Lemon Haze. So, we have all this here if you ever want to download the actual raw source code right here. Then, yeah. Windoom version 0.95 source code all available. So it looks like this is private at least here. I mean, it is out there, which is cool. Uh, however, they just say to the collector, thanks to the collector who share these source codes with us here. Um, it's not saying, you know, the developer who worked on this, the company that might have been working on it or anything. Uh, but it seems like this really could have been a tried and true attempt at least at porting doom over because again this was using actual sega development hardware so this is really awesome this is cool to see now something i talked about a bit before has been some 60 frames per second patches for the playstation 5 and this is actually now released thanks to the lib hijacker fork by illusion so reading this here over on uh, the wololo article they state scene developer illusion has released their tool which allows to patch ps4 ps5 games for 60 frames per second on a hacked PS5. This release is a fork of Ostrowski's Lib Hijacker, to which Illusion has been heavily contributing over the past few weeks, with game patches on top. 
This release supports the following game patches, all of which are currently hard-coded into the source. So the nice thing is here with Lib Hijacker, you would essentially host this, run it to exploit on your PS4, and then it just has these patches built in, so when you boot up the games with these respective versions, it works here. So, for example, some of the games are Batman Arkham Knight version 1.15, Bloodborne version 1.09, although this patch is from Lance McDonald. It also has no motion blur, no chromatic abrasion, and a debug camera. Uh, Crash Team Racing version 1.21. Demon Souls version 1.00, this 60 frames per second unlock is for cinematic mode, Drive Club 1.28, Gravity Rush 2 1.11, The Order 1886 1.02, The Last Guardian 1.03, this is cool, 4K at 60 frames? Okay, alright, alright, that's awesome. The Last of Us Remastered, 60 frames per second and a debug menu for version 1.11, The Last of Us Part 2, 60 frames per second with a debug menu for the base version and 1.09, just Cause 4, 1.32 for 60 frames per second. Shadow of the Colossus, this one is 1440p at 60 frames per second with a debug menu. Silent Hills PT at 60 frames. And Red Dead Redemption 2, version 1.29 at 60 frames per second. So here they're covering how this all works. Now this does require Python here, but it states here, with that said, to make it short, the steps look like this. You need to have a hackable PS5, then you run the PS5 exploit, so you can do do it locally or you can run it on a device such as the ESP2866 but most people just use El Azif's DNS connect to a public exploit server such as Echo Stretch's uh, 7 in 1 site then you ensure you need to have at least one of the games either disc or digital installed and ready to play on your PS5 it has to be the exact same version as supported by the patch system then you send over Illusion's payload to your console once it's essentially been jailbroken. Then you're able to run the game and you end up getting a nice debug uh, feature like this. So super cool to see here. I do know and I did see this that Modern Warfare also put up a video covering this. So if you want a visual there, you're able to follow that. But this is just overall super cool to see and have released. This is a project I've talked about here and there, but this is Baryon Sweeper, which is, I guess, in short, a extension of the Jig Kick or Pandora's battery for the PSP. In case you did not know, this was a service mode battery, which you could put into your PSP and then when coupled with a magic memory stick that had some very specifically formatted and set up files on there, you could fully unbrick a fully bricked PlayStation Portable and bring it back from the dead. The thing is with the Jig Kick, that only worked for the 1000 model and most of the 2000 models, but Barian Sweeper is aiming to work on every single model. So it does work on the 3000 models, however, how do you get it to work on some models such as the PSP Go or even the PSP Street that don't have a removal battery? Well, looking at this here, this confirms that this is working for the PSP Go. They state here in the Wololo article, Hackers looking to unbrick all models of PSP have made some tremendous progress this week. Leo Oliveira showcasing working service ODE and unbricking tools for the PSP Go. Interestingly, his setup makes use of the PSP Go Cradle, a pretty hard-to-find docking station for the console. The hackers gave the precision that the other components can be used instead. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that PSP hackers were actively looking into the PSP Go to figure out how to unbrick it with Baryon Sweeper. It appears they're already here, and we might see schematics sooner rather than later. And right here we have this where the Pandora battery is here for the PSP Go. We can take a look at this. He hooks this all up to his cradle and the system itself, and there we go. 
we have that all shown up there. So you're able to do everything you need to in order to unbrick this, which is super awesome to see. In parallel, Zeko Xiao has published some initial schematics on how the Baryon Sweeper battery will connect to the PSP Go. Why the PSP Go cradle was used is shown clearly here, but as the schematics mention, any plug containing all pins may be used instead. So right here, it looks like there is a FT232RL USB to TTL serial adapter on here. Uh, this has to be set to the 1.8 volt jumper here. Then you have a few wires, so you're able to take ground, you hook it up to ground. You're able to take RX, you end up soldering it to both pins 14 and 17. Then you need to take TX, and you're going to also wire that into the RX line right there, but you need to put a 1 in 4148 diode and put it in there specifically, in that configuration specifically is what I'm saying here. And I'm wondering here, because it looks like there's like two wires essentially, but then you have to bridge these three points, 25, 28, and 24, but the thing is, I'm so it looks like that's how that would all go there. I definitely want to see more of this here, but overall, I'm loving seeing this where it seems like very soon we'll be able to fully unbrick any PSP model. Now, this is going to be some sad news here. Typically, I like to have uh, some kind of random thing that might be in regards to modding here, but this time, I'm sorry, it's, it's going to be a little sad. This is actually from the Xbox website, and this is an announcement stating... Uh, this was made almost a year in advance here, just shy of a year, but they state here the Xbox 360 store will close July 2024, but you can keep playing your favorite games. They state here, uh, this November will mark 18 years since the Xbox 360 launched. It was a generation-defining console that invited many to jump into gaming for the first time and connect with friends around the world. Over the years, we've heard stories of players who found a lifelong love of games, starting with the likes of Cameo, Gears of War, Fable 2, and other Xbox 360 classics. We're thrilled so many fans keep playing their favorite Xbox 360 games on Xbox 360 or on newer consoles via backward compatibility. As we head toward 2024, we have a change to share about the Xbox 360 experience. On July 29th, 2024, Xbox will stop supporting the ability to purchase new games, DLC, and other entertainment content from the Xbox 360 store on the console and the marketplace, so that'd be marketplace.xbox.com. Related to this change, the Microsoft Movies and TV app will no longer function on the Xbox 360, which means TV and movie content will no longer be viewable on your Xbox 360 after July 29th, 2024. Between now and July 2024, you can continue purchasing games and DLC from the Xbox 360 store and the Xbox 360 marketplace. This change will not affect your ability to play Xbox 360 games or DLC you have already purchased. Xbox 360 game content previously purchased will still be available to play, not only the Xbox 360 console, but also Xbox One and Xbox Series X, S devices via backward compatibility. Now with some questions here, they asked, can I still play my Xbox 360 games after July 2024? In short, yes. Uh, now, they do say if you've deleted a game that you have purchased, but you want to play it again, you will still be able to re-download it. What about multiplayer games via the Xbox network? Can I still play with friends? Yes, even after July 2024, you will still be able to play games and connect with friends through multiplayer on the games you've purchased, as long as the publisher still supports the online servers. Can I still buy and play Xbox 360 backward compatible titles? 
They say here there is no impact of purchasing or playing backward compatible 360 titles. After July 29, 2024, you will still be able to purchase hundreds of great backward compatible Xbox 360 and original Xbox games and DLC on Xbox One, Series, and Xbox.com. We believe in celebrating gaming's rich history and have worked hard to preserve as many games as possible through our backward compatibility program. For those who still wish to continue playing Xbox 360 games on the series, we've taken the time to enhance those titles so they look and play better than before, which is a given. So one last question they ask, how can I continue to stream and download Microsoft movies and TV content I purchased on Xbox 360? And they state that this app is available on Windows devices running Windows 10 or later, Xbox One, and Xbox Series S or X. However, I guess this here, uh, the only question I have in regards to it is really this here where they're talking about playing uh, backwards compatible titles right here. Because you can still use the same gamer tag from Xbox 360 all the way over to the Xbox Series S and X. However, here they specifically state you will still be able to purchase hundreds of great backward compatible Xbox 360 and original Xbox games and DLC on Xbox One, Series, and Xbox.com. So that's specifically talking about the purchasing on there. So I'm hoping that also means that as long as you purchase one of these games after July 2024, uh, as long as you're on the same account and use that account on your Xbox 360, I would hope that means that you can access that game and play it on there if you ever want to play it natively. Uh, because it seems like they'd be going a little out of their way to disable that completely. But it does show that at least on the bare metal hardware itself and on marketplace.xbox.com, you won't be able to purchase uh, 360 content from there anymore. Uh, overall on here, I, I guess what is my thought on this? I'll say the Xbox 360 staying online has gone on a lot longer than I expected here. Uh, I expected this would have been shut down a few years ago, but this definitely here is more so the beginning of the end. And it's been like that for a while, but this is really just with a big sign on it, so to speak, right here. Straight up saying the store is going to close at this point. And I don't think there's going to be as much pushback on this one here, just because one, this is still a... This is going to be almost, once this closes, it'll be almost 19 years that the console was available and online to purchase games. But on top of that, they are giving, I'll give them this, they're giving a really big heads up on here. They're giving a really big heads up saying that July 29th is going to have next year, so almost a year in advance, they're giving us this update here, which is nice in that regard. The big thing here as well, too, with the 360 compared to the PS3 and Vita shutdown that almost happened is that we still have a way to play a lot of these games thanks to backward compatibility. So is it disappointing? Sure. Uh, does every game work on the new systems? No. Will every game work on the new systems? No. But there's still a way to still play and access those games. However, one big downside is going to be that there's going to be games on the digital storefront that are not backwards compatible, will never be backwards compatible, and as soon as July 29th of next year comes around, uh, many of those games that you might not have ever purchased uh, on the Xbox 360 and are not backwards compatible, you cannot get those digital games. So there's still going to be a lot of digital games that are going to die off, unfortunately. I'd like to know your all's thoughts on this, what you all think of this here. Um, this is 
interesting, I guess. I kind of expected here, but also at the same time, I'm like, you know, at least they gave us about a year of a heads up, so that's nice. So that is about it for this episode of Mod Chat. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all had some fun listening, watching, and really getting more up to speed in the world of video game mods and video game console modding. So there's been some cool developments, at least this month here, the last few weeks, I guess you can say. Really what we have covered in this episode here that I wanted to talk about. Either way, at the end of these episodes, I do like to give a keyword or key phrase. And what I like to do is look for this in the comments. What I would like you to do is leave a comment in any of the video uploads with this keyword or key phrase. And that way I'll know that you've made it to the end of this episode. Now, I'm really trying to think of what I'm going to use here. Typically, I kind of just use something off of my desk and we see what's going on here. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this. This is kind of just how it goes, right? I have this uh, little SD to Vita adapter here with, uh, you know, what the coolest thing is something that just seems unreal at times. If I can get it out, mind you, this little thing is 400 gigabytes. That's super awesome. That's real cool. <laughs> I, I can still clearly remember uh, seeing a computer we had growing up that had a 20 megabyte hard drive in it, and that was a killer for the time. Uh, either way, let's go ahead and use the word adapter. What kind of adapters do you like? Do you kind of just keep all these random adapters just in case you need them? I'll tell you, I personally have way too many of these SD card to micro SD card adapters because whenever you buy an SD card, almost every time you end up getting one of these and you never know when you're going to need one. So these are always good to have on hand. But do you like adapters? Do you try and avoid them? What do you like to do? Because I will also say one more thing. Sometimes if there's like an interface that requires a SD card, people will just get a micro SD card and then put it into the adapter. But in some cases here, like the camera I'm using, if it just if it uses a full SD card interface, I'm just going to use a full SD card, not get one of these adapters. That's about all I have at this point here. This is Mr. Mario signing off. Thank you all for listening and watching, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, a like would absolutely be appreciated. If you, didn't if you did not like it, a dislike is fine as well, too. But as I always say, if you're going to dislike this, you're going to make that sleepy dog there very, very sad. Just, just keep that in mind.